So there should be this empowerment for a leader to say, I have to be the one to step up and lead. Now, it doesn't you know, mean lead alone, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if the pastor doesn't see himself first as the leader on behalf of the diocese, and sometimes in spite of whether the bishops empowered him or not, then it's going to be tough to lead others. Today, we're starting off the season with a bang, talking about the 10 ways to destroy parish renewal. Welcome to the Missional Leadership Top 10. Here's your host, Tammy LeBlanc. Here at Divine Renovation Ministry, we speak a lot about the things that you need to do in your parish to bring about renewal. But in today's conversation, we're hoping to put a fun twist on that. And we don't want to sound negative, but we're hoping to create a different lens through which you see the things that you might be doing by talking about the things you might be doing to actually destroy renewal in your parish. So I was fortunate to be a parishioner at St. Benedict Parish in the early formative years when they started to embrace renewal. And I had a first-hand seat at a lot of the successes we experienced, but also some of the failures as well. And I think by talking about those failures, it actually helps others to grow. But for today's conversation, I'm inviting Rob McDowell and Matt Reggett into this conversation with me. They happen to be two of our longest standing coaches and who bring quite a bit of experience with them. So welcome to the conversation, guys. Hey, Tammy. It's great to be here today. Good uh, morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. And to you, Tammy and Rob, it's good to be with you. And no pressure after that setup. No, easy, easy sailing from here on out. <laughs> Well, I figured after saying that you guys are our most senior coaches, I did a little bit of digging to find out together how many parishes you guys have coached since working with the ministry. So would you guys be surprised to know that together you guys have coached 130 priests? Wow. That's, that's got to all be Rob. Like I'm, <laughs> I was going to say, I think, I, I think six of those are mine. <laughs> <laughs> now, no pressure really at all. That's, that's a great lead in. <laughs> but it just goes to speak to how far we've come, right? It's no longer the from the trenches, as we like to say, experience of one parish. This is now an insight that we bring from um, from a global perspective. It is cool. Like now we've been doing this to be able to kind of step back and, and yeah, there's some convictions and beliefs, but now there's you're starting to be able to observe trends and consistencies and things like that that you're able to kind of observe at a little bit more of a global perspective. Mm-hmm. And as you said that too, Tammy, I realize you, you checked in uh, with being a member of St. Benedict's Parish. Well, I was a member of Prince of Peace Parish, right? So it's like, we all know this from our starting point and now to see where we've come and to then realize like, we're not even scratching the surface yet. That's yeah. that's the amazing part, right? Yeah. And I think it's probably fair to say, would you guys feel that you've grown over the last few years too? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, when, when you think when we first started, you know, most of who we started coaching originally was larger, multi-staffed parishes. And over time, we've developed to where you have a single priest with multiple locations, uh, you know, a lot more diversity, rural, inner city, different continents, right? So there's, you know, and, and, and you're seeing, you know, renewal happen in all these different contexts. So early on, we had a very kind of narrow focus and experience of who we connected with in the coaching world. And now that's just continued to grow and diversify. Yeah, and even wondering as as I've expanded uh, my my coaching reach, uh, like Rob said, to different continents and different cultures. Like all of a sudden now, I always I was very insecure. Like, how is Texas going to play in the UK? 
Now, you'd have to ask them honestly when I'm not in the room because all I get from them is normally, well, that's very interesting. So interesting can be good or interesting can be bad. But um, you realize that the cultural context matters. And sometimes we have to start with that like, hey, I know you're not my big mega parish in Houston. I know you have unique challenges. I know you don't have the large staffs. But what are the things that are rather consistent, right? What are the, the principles at play? And even as we're going to talk today, like, what are the things people are still getting wrong everywhere? Just to open up this conversation, then, how we came about building our list of 10 was we kind of each took a stab at creating our individual list, right? And then we came together and we looked for commonalities and we thought it would be fun to do a countdown. So we're going to go from 10 to 1 and work our way down through, uh, again, the top 10 things that parishes are doing to destroy renewal in their parishes. Number 10. So we're going to start with number 10, which is focusing on change management over culture change. Parishes are focusing so much perhaps on managing all the changes that they're introducing in their parishes to bring about renewal that sometimes they're missing the key component, which is culture. You know, culture is kind of the nebulous, it's there, you're not sure what to do with it. It's not like it has all these tangible things to like, if you pull this lever, then this happens. And if you stop doing this, this happens. Because I think the most apparent thing for people in renewal is like change management. Like, let's just do this some steps. Uh, just tell me what I need to do. And I think in a sense, uh, maybe just to remind us that culture itself can be a thing that we affect. Like you can affect culture. It's not like we just live in a culture and we have to deal with it and adjust to either fit in or to stay a little countercultural. If we actually believe the premise that we could change culture at a parish. And for some, especially for Catholics, it's like, well, I don't want to change the culture. You know, and maybe to get specific about what we mean around culture change, and it's not just change management. And I think that's what a lot of times people see renewal as is like, just give me the book and I'll follow some some things to make me a better leader somehow. Yeah. And obviously behaviors and actions go into that. But a lot of times we don't think of culture as kind of reprogramming some of our consistent attitudes and habits and things like that that affect the way people experience the parish, you know, and one of the ways to think about culture is to think about a business that when you walk into, you enjoy visiting that versus when you walk into a business that you don't enjoy walking into and you don't always know why that's a cultural issue. And and, and that's the same thing people experience in our parishes. And so when we think about change, starting at that point of recognizing that we don't just need to add a few programs or we just need to do some, some things differently that the change is, is much more fundamental to the overall thinking and attitude and habits of our organization. You know, Father James uh, quite often will quote Peter Drucker that says, you know, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? The old expression that we can say we want to do things differently and we can implement different strategies. But until we truly see the role that culture plays and as we make our changes, try to actually address culture, there's not going to be any significant or long-lasting change. You can see, you can change different things and see, uh, think you know, some changes happen in the short term and things like that, but long-term sustained change will not happen without addressing the culture. Yeah, I, you know, I, I just maybe add that some of the resistance to culture change are the people already in the pews. 
the church is just where they like it. Why change it, right? So if we start affecting the way the overall church feels, the the folks that are maybe all that are considered paying the bills or paying members or in the club, that's why they're at that parish because they like the culture just the way it is. But if the culture around them is shrinking or the numbers of members are shrinking, and we don't change and we don't affect culture, then uh, where are we going to be for the next group that would call themselves members? Okay, so help me break open. What does parish culture look like? What does that mean? That's probably not even something that people are connecting with parish life, a culture. What kinds of things are you coaching parishes towards in a healthy culture? I think a starting point is around like hospitality and welcome. Because so far, the, the, the prevailing culture, this probably isn't your parish, but it's some parishes. The prevailing culture is we have deputized ushers at the doors. That's hospitality. That's how we've invested in hospitality. And it's a club that you got to like, you know, get membership in or be invited by one of the existing um, ushers. And that's not culture change, right? So if you want to look at hospitality and a culture change, look to how the people in the pews are treating each other. If they're welcoming each other, if they're in, uh, inviting conversation like, hey, I, you're new here, right? Or how long have you been here? Hey, my name's Matt. It's really good to, to meet you. Uh, do you normally come to this mass? Do, where do you, what do you, tell me about your family. Now, I'm not saying right as mass is starting, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a preference for when that would happen. But when you see culture change around hospitality, it's when the people in the pews are doing it, not just deputized people we put at the doors. That's just an example a simple example, I think, is a good starting point for parishes to consider. Then it becomes not something that they're checking off of a list, which we would equate to change management, versus you're changing the heart of the people, which in turn is driving the culture change because they want better things for their parishioners. They want them to experience like they're being welcomed. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, really at the heart of culture is what values do get lived out. You know, not what values do you stick on a wall and say you value, but what values actually, you know, get lived out, you know, because every church is going to say a certain number of things like we value this, like we value people and we value people that are outside of a relationship with Jesus. But when you get inside, it's like, no, really what they value is the status quo. Really what they value is everything being the same. Really what, you know, and, and so there's what actually get lived out and what gets lived out in your values is actually what is going to form your culture. Number nine. So number nine on our list is placing human effort above the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is something probably that creeps into parishes without them even realizing it. Uh, what does that mean to put the power of the Holy Spirit first? Is it just a matter of praying that God blesses all of our efforts. So whether that's a prayer that we open with, a prayer that we end with, or is it like Father James Mallon, the founder of Divine Renovation Ministry, once challenged us, is, is our job to discern what God is doing and for us to come alongside what God's doing. So something that we talk a lot about in Divine Renovation is this idea of leaning into your strengths. And I'm thinking that as coaches, you guys probably see parishes doing this really well. So if they're doing this well and they're leaning into their God-given strengths, what pitfalls are we talking about here that we need to be aware of? Just to clarify, 
they're doing which one really well? Their human efforts or the Holy Spirit efforts? Sorry, they're leaning into their strengths, which is their strengths, but it is God-given. So could it be confused as this is God versus this is me? Yeah, we can get confused with it, right? Like, because when you're doing God's work, it all seems like it's it's intertwined, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, when we look at this one, I think first off, we just have to step back and just realize that what we're talking about here, the steps we're taking, it, it really is God's idea, right? Like what we're inviting people into the church and evangelization renewal is, you know, this this is this is God's idea first off and not ours. But then I think beyond that is that we have to recognize and ask the question and seek, okay, how is God guiding us and leading in us? Because we have, and, and I think particularly in North America or the Western church, we have all kinds of books and resources, and it's easy to think, okay, we should renew our parish and then run off and come up, come up with a bunch of best practices and ideas and or have some brainstorming sessions and think, that's great, let's do that. When really we're not taking that step uh, with the power that comes, you know, from the Holy Spirit, and it's it, it's a weird mix because we have to be docile and open, but yet it it, it does involve uh, us taking steps of faith. I think you know the uh, analogy years ago I heard Rick Warren say is you know compared uh, the the movement of the Holy Spirit to surfing. And the fact that when people are, and I've never surfed, so this is purely theoretical. Uh, when when you're surfing, you don't create the wave; God creates the wave. But at the same time, you have to you have to be docile, and you have to go where the wave takes you. But you also have to have the skill of knowing how to ride the wave. So it's not passive, but there is a part where you're submitting and you're allowing what God has created to take you along. And 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 so there's that's kind of the the tension that I feel around this uh, this part of parish renewal. You know, in water parks now, Rob, um, they create wave pools so people can ride the waves. What, what do you have to say about that? I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind too as you're thinking, thinking through the balance, uh, A.W. Tozer has that quote that says, um, if the Holy Spirit withdrew his presence from the church today, 95% of the activity would continue and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit withdrew his presence from the early church, 95% of the activity would cease and everybody would notice. So I don't have a measurement like you can't look at here's the here's the 5% you should keep doing and the 95 to stop doing, but at least the shocking like gut punch to say does that mean everything we're doing is the is the is God's will and are we are we inviting the Holy Spirit to drive all of this or have we started to confuse our human efforts and really good plans with what God wants us to be doing? Hmm, that's good, Matt. So in coaching scenario then, how are you kind of um helping parishes to draw that out to see the difference or maybe do some soul searching there? Yeah, I like a lot more blank canvas type uh, gatherings right? Instead of we just bring our plan to God and ask God to ratify the plan. I like teams and pastors and leadership teams to get together and say like, we're just going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord to reveal that next step for us or that plan. Or when we get stuck before we just wrestle through the issue together, how about we stop and say, God, what, what do you want here? Come Holy Spirit, show us, enlighten our minds, 
give us some clarity together, move in us. We give you permission. So it's that constant inviting and giving permission again, but I like a lot more blank canvas work. It doesn't mean all the time, right? So we're going to get, we're, we're going to get down to some pra ta practical and tactical things, but what would it look like to start with God's plan before we just bring our plan to God to ratify it? Yeah, no. And, and I'd say just to add to that, like one of the things is, you know, as you're, as you're looking at what's happening and in your busyness and all that sort of stuff, what's happening that you're surprised by? And then, you know, what's happening that you know you couldn't produce on your own, right? Like you're seeing life change happen. You're seeing attitudes change. You're seeing prayer answered. You're seeing new, new movements. And again, it's not just once you head down the path of parish renewal that you just snap your fingers and, you know, click your heels and all this stuff happens. There's certainly a, a, a patience and a persistence and a consistency, but over time you're actually able to see like that was God, right? Like that was, that, that came not because of our own efforts. And I think part of the, the, the outgrowth of this is there's a humility on the part of the leader because they recognize that this isn't them, right? And so you, we, we need to lead and you need to lead effectively. You know, we talk about, uh, the importance of leadership, but at the same time, you're seeing an outcome and you're seeing a result that you know isn't you. Do you get an example from coaching, Rob? Well, I think whenever, you know, you're working with a church that, um, you know, has just been kind of in maintenance mode, kind of gone along, and then all of a sudden they start to focus on evangelization and they see people come to Christ. I think of, you know, our church in Montreal, Father Michael Leclerc, and uh, his testimony or his story around the fact that they hadn't baptized an adult in their parish in, I think, the 70s, late 70s, I don't remember the specific year, and, you know, him just being convicted by this and going back, like, and, and you know, he said uh, he never wanted to go through another Easter season without having adult baptisms because of conversion and, you know, things along those lines, right? Like, that was a, a changed result that in and of himself he couldn't do. He could get convicted by it. He could, you know, he could be motivated by it, but but he doesn't have the ability to change people. Only the Holy Spirit does, right? And so whenever you see people stepping in leadership, whenever you see people stepping out on faith, when you see people inviting to Alpha, you see people encountering Jesus in, uh, you know, through evangelization, you know, you see people come alive with the fruit of the Spirit in new ways. Uh, you know, I think these are these are tangible things that once you start to focus on, you can start to see and, and realize, like, I didn't have that ability as a pastor. I didn't have that ability uh, as a staff person or a ministry leader or whatever the case might be. And if we get good at sharing this stuff corporately, like when we see it happen, when we name it, when we tell others what's happening, it's like Father James talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like the power, like a light socket kind of power. That's how the power transfers. Like people want to hear it's possible in their life. They want to they believe that there's more to it than just my best efforts, right? Yeah. And if we talk about it and normalize it, it, it becomes this corporate experience of how the spirit wants to just move freely in the people. Which starts to transform our culture that we previously talked about, right? Where we normalize it. Yeah. Number eight. Okay, let's move on to number eight on our list, which is passing the buck. So waiting for someone else to step up and lead. <laughs> oh no, Matt, I think I, I think you should Over take this to one. you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tammy, you go. You tell us. Okay. I think it's fair to say that we hear a lot of priests 
who are leery to take on renewal because they don't see themselves like Father James. Father James, they see as a, I don't know, a born leader or whatnot, but they don't feel like they have what it takes. Uh, they've made up a de- uh, they've made up a decision in their mind of what a leader looks like, and somewhere along the line, they decided that that's not them. Perhaps even they've decided that it's not their responsibility, and so they're waiting for someone else, like maybe their their bishop or their diocesan leadership. But um, yeah, so you guys break that open for me some more. Well, it's daunting and intimidating. And I think it's easy to deflect and it's easy to blame everyone else and not see your own ability to influence it, right? Like, oh, there's so many problems in the church today. You know, uh, it's not like it used to be and people don't just come to church anymore and people leave after, you know, and they just go on and on and on uh, and, and list the challenges that we're, that we're working through and then disconnect any ability to change the outcomes of that and just see it as this problem that they can't do anything about. And, you know, they blame society or they blame church members or they blame the diocese or whatever the case might be, but they're not, they don't step back and say, this is something that I can step into and actually make a difference around. This one, you know, it's, it's about leadership, right? This is obviously a leadership uh, problem when we talk about passing the buck or uh, down here in Texas, you might say kicking the can, right? So like, wait till the next guy shows up and he'll fix it. Um, it's, it's this interesting dynamic, right? That like, even as pastors are leading parishes or parish priests are in charge and shepherding the parish, do they see themselves as the leader? I know they see themselves in a leadership capacity, especially a spiritual leadership sense, but do they see themselves as leaders or are they just there because the bishop assigned them there to do the task of being a pastor? And if you just see yourself as doing the task, you might not decide to do anything new or to do something different or to address the change or really step out and lead. And we wait instead for the diocese to lead. And I don't want to say anything here that we have to edit later, but like dioceses aren't really positioned to lead well and nimbly, right? They're big too. They're, they're managing risk. They're trying to lead a bunch of churches at the same time. It's not catered for one parish or another, but that's really why the pastor's there. That's really why he's there is to address the needs of that parish on behalf of the diocese. So there should be this empowerment for a leader to say, I have to be the one to step up and lead. Now, it doesn't you know, mean lead alone, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if the pastor doesn't see himself first as the leader on behalf of the diocese, and sometimes in spite of whether the bishops empowered him or not, then it's going to be tough to lead others other than just going through the motions kicking the can to the next guy, keeping the doors open, which doesn't inspire anyone. Matt, would it be fair to say, like go back to what you first started talking about, that priests understand that they're in charge, but they don't see themselves as leader. There's a difference between thinking of yourself as a leader and thinking you're in charge. And just thinking you're in charge isn't going to bring renewal. If you want to bring renewal, you got to embrace your identity as a leader. It's so true. Yeah, I so it is true, right? It is true. Even if they'd use the term leader to refer to themselves, most of them are more like administrators or managers, not not leaders. And how many, uh, Rob, from you talking to priests, how much um, leadership training and formation do they get in the seminary? I can't remember the number of hours. Um, I think it's zero. <laughs> oh okay okay yeah yeah thanks yeah just leadership and again there's a place for management and organization our goal this isn't an either or scenario 
but to recognize that leadership is fundamentally different from management. Leader has leadership has a foresight to it. It's future oriented. It's about you know where you want to go into. Whereas management is focused on the here and now, focused on organization. And again, it's you need both. So you know we're not trying to speak negatively about organization and management, even though I you know can maybe come across that way because I'm terrible at it. But uh, just my personal bias sometimes. But but recognizing that yeah, the, the idea of of seeing the direction that you want a parish to go in and starting to think that way and taking intentional steps that make the changes needed to, to, to start moving and moving in that direction. And I know this didn't just, you know, from one little number on a list of ways to mess up renewal, I know this doesn't just flip it for a pastor to go, okay, I'm a leader. I'm going to do it. It's, it's about formative steps, right? Like they can grow as a leader. There are other resources out there. There's other parishes that are doing this. There's other priests that can mentor them. There's other, there's other members of the lay community right there in their, in their, their area that can help raise them up and form them as leaders if they'd invite other people into that. So I think we're starting to cross-pollinate with, with our next number, number seven. Um, but yeah, to your point, Matt, I think this doesn't, conversation doesn't just pertain to the priests, it's the lay leaders as well, thinking that it's not their responsibility. And again, passing the buck on to other lay leaders or thinking it's just father's responsibility. Yeah. Well, and, and again, around this idea around leadership, it's so often, in, and we made reference to this before, around people that compare themselves to Father James Mallon. The issue isn't, are you a leader or not? The issue is what type of a leader are you? Right. And, you know, like Father James has some very specific gifts uh, around leadership and he's very gifted in what he does, but it, uh, he doesn't have all the gifts and he's wired differently. And so uh, you can see all kinds of people who have personalities and strengths completely opposite to Father James that are very effective leaders. So the issue isn't are you a leader or not, but what type of leader are you? And learning to step into that, become self-aware and, and shape your leadership around that. And the next point will uh, influence a little bit about how you approach it. <laughs> okay, so which brings us to point number seven, number seven, which is taking a Lone Ranger attitude. And I think that this probably sounds a bit like um, the opposite of what we just talked about in number eight, where we talked about priests or lay members of the parish who want to sit back and, and wait for somebody else to take responsibility. Okay, Rob, what do you have to say about this one, the, the Lone Ranger leadership attitude? For some personality types, this, this can be kind of a common thing. But again, one of the things that we see in churches that actually experience sustained renewal is an approach to leadership that's team-based. And, you know, where the whole thing doesn't completely reside around one, one priest. Now, again, the priest's role is central and, you know, uh, it's, it, it's key that he understands he's a leader, but it's not key that he becomes all things to all people and does all leading. And so learning to step back and learning how to share responsibility, learn how to trust other leaders learn how to understand other leaders and rely on their strengths that where maybe uh, you don't have those same strengths. Understanding is, is key to, the, to, to seeing long-term sustained renewal happen. You know, um, even the Lone Ranger, it's like at the end of every show, he was victorious, right? But he had a sidekick. He didn't actually do it alone. Even in the show, it's like, you got the whole premise wrong. Uh, your name needs to change, you know? Um, but I think, you know, maybe there's the, there is this not necessarily hero complex when it comes to like leadership, 
I know there's that for some people, but most priests did not get in this because they wanted to be the hero of everything. But that's how culture works. It's how movies work. Like there's a hero and he comes and saves the day. So it does maybe in a sense influence just what's accepted in, in culture, how we lead. Because leading others is harder work than just doing it myself. And how many times do, do we, I mean, I'll speak for myself. How many times do I say, well, I got it. It's just easier. Just let me do this. Like if I ask my kids to do something for me and I have to explain all the steps, I'm like, just, I'm just going to do it. You know, I, I get this going to take me more work. Yeah. You know that as a mom, right, Tammy? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that we like think that's the best way always. It's just the only way we've ever led and how we experience it. And if you're not the hero of the story, if you're not used to like, I mean, if I ask all the priests listening or watching this, how many of you have led a parish through a renewal process and you're getting moved because of the wild success of that because the bishop wants you to do that at the next place? That's not why most priests are in this, right? But what if we didn't have that pressure on them? Instead said, look, you don't have to do this alone. It actually doesn't work alone. You'll get more burned out. You'll be more busy. You'll, you'll fight harder than you ever have before. And you're, it's, the, the payout's going to be you know manageable, simple, small. I just think if we know, first of all, that you're not supposed to do it alone, does it give us some freedom to say this might be hard at first, but what would the payoff look like if I started to invite other people into this, if I didn't have to do it alone or have all the gifts? Yeah, and it actually builds into this model of clericalism, too, where we're led to believe that the mission of the church is the responsibility of the ordained, right? And if we don't invite lay leaders into that space, then we don't actually give them space to fulfill their baptismal call. That's a good point, Tammy. I coached a guy, he was one of my very first parishes to coach, and um, he was kind of the Lone Ranger. Like he would admit, admit like, yeah, I'm doing things differently. And like, I believe we should be doing this, which I loved his passion and his hunger. But the hardest thing for him was to slow down and wait for some people to catch up and maybe even let some people get out in front of him and carry the load. He stayed very overwhelmed almost the whole time that we were in coaching. He did some great things, but it was kind of that flash in the pan stuff. And it didn't seem sustainable. And his team... He called it a team, but they were close to burnout too. They were always, I don't know what father's going to do next. They were like just trying to keep up with the Lone Ranger leader. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I love, Matt, you've probably had the same experience is, is looking at a priest and, and most priests, once they enter into coaching uh, with us, they're a little bit skeptical because they've been under such a load for such a long time. And they're a little bit like, like, okay, well, I'm going as hard as I can. And a lot of them are working you know, 60, 70, sometimes more hours a week. And then they come into things a little skeptical because they think, you know, you're just going to tell me to do all this stuff on in addition to it. And it's fun to kind of step back and say, look, I want to help you become more of who God has made you to be. And I want to help you to see your priesthood in a completely different way. And when they get it and they make that shift, like, and then they're like, oh my word, I can't imagine that I didn't do this sooner, right? Like that's one of the huge, that that's one of the huge payoffs. And, and again, I'm I'm glad that it I'm glad that it leads and it changes the the priesthood for for guys and makes it more sustainable. But that isn't where we want to stop. We want to continue building that so that the parish becomes fruitful, right? And and that shift uh, of of working working out of a team that way 
and making the priesthood much more sustainable. They still work hard. They're still busy. It's not like all of a sudden they're just, well, what am I going to do with my time now? You know, um, right? But uh, but it is when done right and done in a healthy way does help everybody lead in a much more sustainable way. And imagine if it was not just about being busy or having to work all these crushing hours, but doing the things that only the priests can do by virtue of their ordination that other people can't. And, and knowing the difference, right? Knowing the difference and how to figure that out with a team so priests can preach more. They can, they can invest in their leadership. They can celebrate the sacraments. They can preside at mass. The things that we have to have a healthy, high-functioning priest to do. Okay, so let's move on to number six on our list, which is having vision for the future that looks a lot like the present. So vision is actually something that a parish who comes to coaching uh, will work with us kind of early on in their renewal stage. And so we spend a lot of time coaching into visioning, uh, but I never really thought of it necessarily something that's hindering their or maybe even destroying their parish renewal efforts. So talk to me about uh, these visions that are actually destroying parishes' renewal efforts. Well, I have one example, but should I wait for Rob to impart his wisdom before I share it? Whatever you want, Mac. Dive in if you want. <laughs> okay, you, you clean up after. Just don't say any parish names. <laughs> oh, so yeah, so Saint so-and-so. You know. um, no, I was working with a parish. As you said that, Tammy, just remind me, I was working with this parish. And we'd been working a long time together and with the team. It was a very high-functioning team. The pastor was doing well to, to share leadership through his team and really raise those other members of the team up as leaders and thought partners and prayer partners, not just like doing his bidding, right? Um, and so they decided they really needed to cast a, a vision for where the parish needed to go. We like to say a vision is a God-given picture of the future that produces passion and hope. And so they needed to do that. You know, they had like a mission statement on their annual report, but none of them knew what it was. The pastor didn't know what it was. He didn't even know how long ago it was made. So he gathered them together to dream and to pray about what was possible at the parish. What could the parish as uh, aspire for? Um, or what could it look like in 10 years? So they met, they did all the, the meetings and they wrestled together. That's a really good conversations about it. And then the day came, they're like, oh, Matt, we're so excited. We can't wait to like present you with our vision. Like I'm the final arbiter of this, right? So we got on a call and they said, okay, we're going to read it to you. There's like eight of them on the team. I felt like I was on the spot and they read me their vision. And I tried not to let my reaction on my face say that, um, that I didn't like it. And so I just reframed what my face was going to say. And I asked them a question. And the question I asked him was, how excited are you all about that direction? And how excited are the people in your pews going to get when they hear it? And I said, tell you what, one through 10, write the number down on your pad. We're going to go around the room. We're going to ask everybody how excited they are and how excited the people are going to be to hear it. Do you know what the average of those like nine or 10 people was on that call? Actually, it's the number of this destroying parish renewal. Number six, they ranked it a six. And they hadn't even rolled it out yet. And they're telling me like, this is our brand new, shiny, fresh off the line vision. And we're happy with it at a level of a six. I didn't have to say anything. They all realized we got to go back to work. 
this ain't going to work. Nobody's going to get out of bed in the morning and be excited about this. And our parish certainly isn't going to become something new that it's not already. Well, here's a question. And, and again, okay, Rob, clean me up. Just for those that are listening to this, we didn't have this conversation before. And can I ask you a question about that? Because I'm, I'm predicting what that looked like. Did they <laughs> largely just sit down and list the programs that they wanted to do? Yeah. So you could probably argue that in the process is where it went wrong, right? It became a like group think. What they ended up with was vanilla and safe, right? And it wasn't large enough. Now I did tell them, okay, this isn't what you do. These aren't the things you do. This is who you want people to become, where you want to take people. So they got that, but it was like, they got people like excited about what it could be tomorrow. You know, like, hey, we're going to do this in 24 hours. So it wasn't aspiring enough. It wasn't long-term. It was vanilla. Yeah. So often it's, you know, you, you ask people to think this way and they start listing off programs like, oh, we want to do this. We want to run Alpha and we want this for the youth ministry. We want this for the kids. And, and it's all about what they're doing. And it's, and it's, it's all about busyness. Like one of the things that you'll sometimes hear, you know, just in, in initial conversations, like share with me a little bit about your vision. And they go, I want a church where the parking lot is full every night and everyone's busy, right? Like, and again, in and of itself, like I, that, you know, like sometimes when parishes come alive, there's a lot of activity and there's a busyness and there's a buzz to it, but that shouldn't be the vision. That should be kind of the byproduct of it. If, if that's the way that it plays, it's that if that's how it plays itself out, right? Like, and so often, um, it's like, yeah, well, my guess is, you know, a lot of times parishes are already busy, <laughs> you know? So in fact, a lot of times we get them to do less, uh, to actually see kind of this vision become a reality. And there's something I think that's innate in us as individuals. And I think where we are in society today is we, we have a tendency of measuring activity and busyness over fruitfulness and results. And a lot of times when we plan our lives and when we when we pray into our visions, that our vision is just really another vision of busyness and activities without actually thinking of what the actual result, the result or the fruitfulness or even the why we're doing it around some of that stuff. Yeah, I had a, I had a young assistant priest. Uh, I, was, I was at an event where he was at and uh, we were talking about like where the parish was going. And I said, so tell me like, what are you excited about the vision for the parish? He said, we are too busy and we have too many people here to vision. It's somewhat what he said. He basically, we're at a big busy event. He's like, we're just, we're doing our thing, right? We're doing all the things. We don't need to vision because we're busy enough already. Yeah. Yeah. Why would we vision if we're already where we want to be? I have the church right where I want it. I have the church right where I want it. Sometimes it helps to make it personal too. If you think about those close members in your family who have fallen away from the, the church and whatnot. And if they were to come back to your church, what do you want for them? Is it to put them in a program or is it for them to have a place where they come that their life is transformed, right? For the better. Yeah. Yeah, really. How do you envision life change and discipleship should be at the center of what it is that you're, you're talking about these things? And if a program or a methodology helps you, that's great. But what's the outcome? Okay, guys. So that brings us to number five. Number five. Which is treating renewal primarily as a liturgical function. And this one, Matt, I'm actually going to kick over to you to explain what we mean by this one. <laughs> we put a lot of topics under this one when we brought our lists together. 
Um, and and you had a good name for it, which was um, this treating as a liturgical function. So what do we mean by liturgical function? This is the hot button, right? Like, so we buried it in the middle so it wouldn't be like clickbait for people that are in all the liturgical battles about what the church should and shouldn't be doing. Um, which, by the way, I, I'm going to be Switzerland here and say, we need good liturgy, right? This isn't, I said, when you say it's not primarily a liturgical function, we need good liturgy. Um, you know, the deposit of faith in, in our church um, is expressed sacramentally. And so what we show up for on mass on Sunday, I mean, it's not supposed to be like, you know, liturgical dancing and uh, felt banners. And maybe after, you know, a, a certain time period, which will remain nameless, that's what it felt more like. And so I think there's been this swing back to thinking what we need to do as a church is drive deeper inside and get more authentic to the way we worship. And by the way, that's a noble directional drive to pray better, to be more uh, orthodox to, to beliefs and teachings and practices, and to grow our sense of sacred and reverence. I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. But when we see parish renewal as if we would just do everything inside the church better, it would come back to life and people would start showing up. Because I think we confuse sometimes what growth looks like and naming certain types of growth like transfer growth. And we've seen this when one church starts doing one thing really well, people from other churches go to that thing. My kids as youth group kids, they're like shopping youth groups right now, right? What's is the best one? Where are my friends? How is it the most fun? So that doesn't mean that like if I show up at a parish that all of a sudden their, their parish is on mission because I dropped my kids off at their youth group because I liked what their youth group was doing. The same could be said for our liturgies. People, if they're just shopping liturgies, it's just transfer growth of Catholics. We're just shuffling membership around. So if we see parish renewal as going beyond the walls, then it's something beyond just the liturgical functions inside the church. You know this old, uh, if, if you can see me, if you're on the podcast uh, watching the video, when we used to do this, here's the church, here's the steeple, Open yeah. the doors <laughs> yeah. and where are all the people? I did. Remember I don't this? know if Tammy yeah. did or not. Do you yeah. not do this in Canada? I don't know if he does in Canada. Here, we totally did. You do? Yeah, okay. no, we totally did. I it was all the people. We got you. So in a sense, like I was over in the UK recently, and they have these beautiful churches celebrating these great liturgies, and they're empty. They're empty. And in a sense, we want the church to empty because we want it to go out beyond itself. So Father Philip Connor says we want the church to turn inside out. We don't want them to go away. We want them to go on mission. And then they come back and fill the church. So it's this bi-directional, like leaving the church and coming back. So if we focus all of our efforts just on getting good liturgy, assign that to your parochial vicar, somebody that has a great passion and understanding about it. But let's make sure our parish doesn't turn inward as well, that it can go on mission too. It's a both and. And when we get into this either or world, that's what probably half these fights are about anyway. Yeah, it's a good point. A couple thoughts around that is, you know, we still have a little bit of Christendom thinking, right? Like the idea of if you build it, they will come, right? Like in, in when a lot of our churches were built, whether, you know, regardless of when it was, you know, they'd build a church and people would show up. They'd move to that area. They would come and in a culture of Christendom, it was more likely that someone would go to church or it was a normal activity. And so you didn't necessarily have to be as intentional around, you know, what you did as a church and, and people, people would come uh, to that. 
The other thing around that is, you know, like as a leader and thinking through these issues, we should always be focusing on the direction of our parish and not the size. And, you know, like in our network, uh, you know, Matt, you were at a church uh, or still a church uh, that gets 15,000 people on the weekend. I've coached a church that gets less than 100 people on the weekend, right? And and regardless of the size, like you can you can have 5,000 people come to church and your church be absolutely dead, right? And you can have a church with 200 people that's going somewhere and on mission, right? And so often, again, we confuse size with direction and we think, well, it's big and bigger is better and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah, but to your point, um, you know, sometimes churches are big because of transfer growth and uh, you know, sometimes, you know, issues of immigration and all that. And I think it's great that people are going to church and they have a church, but let's just define it as it is. And let's not celebrate that as evangelization. Let's just celebrate that as it's a big church. And what does it look like to, to move forward in the renewal process? You know, I'll give one example. Um, Kurt Clement, one of our, our executive director for the U.S., another coach, we were at a um, day away. It was uh, their annual convocation. And there was priests of all different um, celebrations of the liturgy. They celebrate different ways. They had different spiritualities. They had different levels of leadership. So it was this cross-section, right? And afterward, this priest that celebrated the traditional Latin mass came up to us. And I was I was wondering, like, um, is he going to be mad at us? Or did we say something he didn't like? But he actually, he was very convicted. He said to us, you know, we have a very vibrant church and we celebrate great liturgy and people really appreciate the sense of sacred is there. And I was, I was just, I just love that. I loved hearing that. And then he said, but you know what I realized after our time together, he said, we don't go out. We have zero evangelization efforts at our parish. And so he realized like, this is a both and thing. It's not do one or the other and then brand ourselves as more authentic it's let's do both and actually be fully Catholic. That's a beautiful story. Okay, which brings us to number four, which is trying to appease everyone. So whether that means having something for everyone or giving voice to the naysayers um, that don't necessarily embrace renewal. Uh, break it open for me a little bit more, Rob. Yeah, one of the traps that we can get into around some of this stuff is religious consumerism. And there's always this tension. Do we offer things people like or do we offer things people need? Right? And those are those don't always necessarily have to be, you know, uh, complete mutually exclusive all the time, but so often when we do things, we offer a program and we think in terms, well, people like this program or not. And rather than saying, well, people like this program, the question that we should ask is in, you know, in looking at our vision, where will this program take someone? How will someone grow as a result of this effort, right? And, and not so much will they like it or not, because what ends up happening is we're doing all kinds of stuff that all, that all kinds of people like. But then when you sit down and you ask the, the question is, are we growing? Are, are, is what we're doing taking people somewhere? Is it leading to transformation? Is Are they growing as disciples? Are they becoming disciples? Uh, or are we just doing a bunch of stuff where people like it? And those are two fundamentally different questions because, you know, I, you know, and I get it. I fall into the trap. I, I enjoy it when people like me. Who doesn't? <laughs> you know, and so that this is one of the tensions 
that we have to step into. And so often, again, it gets back to uh, how we gauge success around things. And it's everybody's like, wow, everybody enjoyed it. It must have been a success. And nobody asked the question as, did it actually lead to life change? Did it actually lead to transformation uh, as a result of it? Can, can I share a great story? Because this is one that I remember as a leader at St. Benedict Parish really struggling with because I didn't want to leave anybody behind and I didn't want anybody to be upset, I guess. Um, so we used to run what we would call connect groups. And it was part of, again, what we called the game plan, which is the strategy that the parish adopted to fulfill their mission. So they were very focused on the game plan. And this particular step in the game plan was where communities that of people that went through Alpha would, would gather in small groups where there was an expectation that they would grow in their discipleship through learning to share their story, uh, learning to speak about their faith. And some people were very opposed to having to share about their faith in whatever capacity. And it became an area of contention. And I can remember the training that we used to receive as leaders on the importance and that this role would play. And so it was a key step in the, the pathway of where the vision was leading us to discipleship. So I embraced it and we journeyed with people to give them that voice to stand up in front of a, a room of supportive people to share their story. It didn't necessarily mean that they were sharing some great change that they had in their life. It could have even been as simple as I am really struggling in this position or this this spot in time in my my faith journey. And wow, people grew. And I remember as leaders thinking that was totally worth it. And I was able to eventually give up that idea that, yeah, if we stepped back from the mission of the church because people were uncomfortable, we never would have reached the point where we were at. That's a great story. It's just like, Tammy, what comes up for me around that is when we lose sight of like almost priorities, right? Like if you've ever looked at a church bulletin, you should be able to tell if they have priorities or is just all the busyness listed. Like it's like a it's like a cruise ship uh, playbill, right? Our, our our parish is just cruise ships, busy, something for everyone. Here's what you do on Monday night. Here's what you do on Tuesday night. Here's the show on Wednesday night. Here's dinner on Thursday night. Like, is that just what it is? Like, just like is is almost the um, the bulletin more chronological in time, or is it set priorities? Like, does it have things like evangelization and discipleship as priority over some of the other things? And this gets people super uncomfortable, right? Like, how do you prioritize your thing over my thing? But if we're just a cruise ship, then it shouldn't matter. But remember, cruise ships leave a port and then they come back to the same port and people get off. People don't leave it. They don't go to a different place. They do for a little while, but then they come right back where they were. There's no growth. But could we be an aircraft carrier where there's a, a known mission for that aircraft? People come back from mission they're refueled at the parish, maybe the mass on Sunday or some of the things, and they're sent again on the same mission. Are we cruise ships or are we aircraft carriers? And this is like, oh, people think, oh, that's cute. But you know where it comes hard work is when those leaders decide we're going to sit down and we're going to set some priorities and we're not going to be something for everyone. 
And we're actually going to edit what we do around our vision and the mission of the church. And, and again, a caveat, it doesn't mean that as a leader, you don't ever listen to people and you don't ever get feedback. But at the same time, you recognize that you are trying to take people to a new place that's going to challenge people and not everybody is always going to agree and like where that new place is, right? So, you know, you can move forward blind, you know, blindly and not listen to people. But at the same time, you know, you're, you're trying to get people to a new place through the new vision and experience a, a new reality. And there are always going to be people that aren't going to like that and aren't going to want to move in that direction. And we have to be okay with that. Okay, number three on our list is treating evangelization as a theory or maybe using it as a buzzword or maybe even a pipe dream. So let's open this topic of evangelization. This one was big on all of our lists. I think we originally called it uh, using Alpha as a program. And then we tried to, to appreciate that not everybody's running Alpha and there's different evangelization tools. And it's so much more encompassing. So let's break open this conversation of evangelization. Hey, Rob, have you ever uh, talked to pastors who don't even, un- are priests, who they don't understand what evangelization is? I I have indeed. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Can I say what I always thought it was? Because for me growing up, evangelization was the people that came knocking on my door to try and convert me to their religion or they stood on a, like a street corner. That's what I grew up <laughs> yep. thinking evangelization yep. was. We help people stand on the street corner. You got it. That's what it still is. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll tell you what three priests I know said to me about evangelization. That Rob, I know Rob's like a rocket ship on this one. He wants to just take off and talk about it. I think it. I'm being fairly patient for the record, and I'm glad you're speaking first. But anyways... <laughs> Well, I'm not going to tell them anymore. I'm just going to tell them what these three priests said to me, because these are three priests I know. One priest said to me, evangelization is just a theory. So they weren't going to do any investment until they had like proved out the theory in the church. Number two, catechesis and evangelization are the same thing, just worded a little differently. And the third was this priest that was so convicted that he was sent to this parish by the bishop to evangelize the people in the pews. And until he got that right, they were not going out to evangelize other people. So if there's confusion in, in the priesthood and in parish leaders, um, I bet I bet there's confusion in other people too. At the heart of what we're doing here, like, you know, and, and I think I may have said this once before, uh, if you don't get evangelization right, it doesn't matter what else you get right. You are not going to see renewal happen. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob McDowell, he's here all day long, and that's the line he's going to tell you. <laughs> yep. It is the central thing. And, you know, the old analogy is, like, you can change anything else you want, but you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Like, this is why I'm at Divine Renovation. This is why I do uh, what I do. And, you know, we talk about the three keys we talk about as one of the three keys, the primacy of evangelization, that evangelization needs a disproportionate amount of energy, which means you need to put more energy and focus into evangelization than anything else. But in that, it you, you need to have a specific understanding of what it is, and you need to prioritize it, and you need to over-invest in it before it's going to happen. And until it happens, you are not going to see any sustainable change happen in your parish. Is it fair to say, too, that um, a good a parish that does evangelization well knows how to reach people where they're at? 
So I'm thinking of um, a story, Matt, that you shared with me about a parish who um, were sharing with you in a coaching session, an idea that they came up with to evangelize that they were so excited about because they were going out into the community. And maybe I'll get you to share the story about the Eucharistic procession. Yeah, they were super excited to, uh, you know, we have this this year, um, this uh, this process right now of, of uh, Eucharistic revival in the church. It's so needed, or it's just such a great gift to the church. But they actually, they started to confuse. They started to confuse because they thought this was evangelizing. They were, they were confusing a little bit like, Eucharistic revival and evangelization. So if we just take the Eucharist out into the streets, we're evangelizing. Now, I'm all for Eucharistic procession. Um, I married a, a girl from Corpus Christi, named after the body of Christ, right? So the Feast of St. Corpus, of, of Corpus Christi is a feast day where we celebrate Eucharistic processions. We're seeing that more. But they thought that was evangelizing by taking our the church, if you will, to the people. Instead of meeting the people where they were, they were bringing the church to where they were. Now, that might be an invitation for some to come back to the church or to consider the church, but that wasn't evangelization. So I just think it's, un- it's important that we understand what evangelization is and isn't. That way we can do something about it. So I'm, I'm curious, Rob, like if you make evangelization primary, does that mean like we just hire an evangelization director or start Alpha? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, those might be some of the steps that you take, depending on your context. But yeah, this is where you want to start to step back and, again, evaluate and reorient your parish and ask yourself, where are we putting our energies? Where are we putting our resources? And do we have a good understanding of evangelization? And are we defining reality around where we're at? Do we know our beginning point? Do we, you know, do we need to know, you know, how things need to change? So, you know, again stepping back and asking ourselves, you know, what needs to happen in order to start to engage people. And, and again, I would say, and I heard this, uh, you know, probably first from you in this language, Matt, that understanding evangelization is where we help people become disciples. Uh, catechesis, spiritual formation is how they, we help them grow as disciples. And so the question is, how do we, how do we help people and how do we help our parish begin to take steps to help people to become disciples? And, and I think what's sometimes challenging around this, I remember, uh, I think it was on a podcast when I was on with, with uh, Father James one time, and he said, he said, anything can be evangelistic, but not everything is evangelism, right? And so you hear all these stories, like Matt, to your, your example around Eucharistic processions, you know, you might hear a story of someone that came back to faith or came to faith because of that. You know, churches will get caught up in all kinds of stuff around funerals, and, you know, a lot of unchurched people come to funerals and things like that. You might hear a story about that, but in and of itself, funerals aren't evangelistic by nature. So there's all kinds of different examples of where you can hear all these stories, and, you know, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while, right? But there's a difference between the outlier and what has happened versus centrally recognizing, no, no, we have to fundamentally activate the church and help the church understand that we have the ability to engage every day as we go about our our, our lives. Every time we lock eyes with someone, we see someone that Jesus loves and someone Jesus died for. And what are we doing 
to in, start to engage some of those people in a personal way to help them understand how much Jesus cares for them and building bridges and doing things to help start to connect them with the understanding of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and his love for them. Yeah, that's at the that's at the key, right? We would think that everything we're doing at the church is because of that, but I think some of time some of the time we've lost the connection to that, right? We've lost the connection. And when you're explaining some of those examples, I love when parishes get to work thinking about how they can take some of their existing offerings and programs and make them more evangelistic. But that's not an evangelization strategy. Right? So if we all sat down in a room and said, Let's come up with an evangelization strategy. It might involve some of the like how we preach at funerals, how we become more hospitable, starting an evangelization tool like Alpha. But what's our strategy? Where are we taking people? And what's centrally important in this mission? And I don't know that many parishes have sat down and said, this is evangelization. This is a strategy for our parish. And this is how we're going to know whether we're making disciples like, like you were mentioning or are we just forming disciples? Because there's a difference. And the Great Commission says one of those and not the other. And I'll leave that to you all to go read. Okay, on that homework note, let's move on to number two. Number two. It is relying on programs over people. So I think at face value, probably a lot of people are thinking that doesn't even make sense. How would anybody rely more on a program? Everything we do is about people. But I think um, you guys could probably shed some light on the fact that, yeah, people are actually getting this wrong. I actually was struggling to turn it into an action word. I think, I, like I said, we came up with relying, but it's hard to come, with an, come up with an action word, I think, because this actually speaks to maybe a mindset more of how you use your programs, right? Rather than using them wrong, it's, it's more about a mindset. So, for example, like programs, are des- we want them to change the hearts of people uh, to help them grow as disciples and leaders. Like we said, they're, they're part of a bigger strategy so that the church grows uh, rather than using them as like a one-dimensional thing that's going to eventually run its course and, and fizzle out. So again, they want we want our programs to tie into the, the bigger picture of where our church is going, the vision for our, our parish. Yeah, I mean, it kind of speaks to the, you know, and I kind of referenced this earlier before, but again, in in thinking of vision and in thinking of how we approach our people, where do we want our people to go? And as we do things, how is what we're doing helping them take steps? So the vision is the big picture, the outcome, the life change, you know, and then we we, we start to form a strategy of how we're, we're going to fulfill that. And as we step back, we say, okay, how are we inviting people to change? How are we inviting people to step up? And then as we do these things, is it actually happening or not? Like, like, one of the things that we hear all the time is, uh, I tried Alpha and it doesn't work, you know? And a lot of times they just think by running Alpha uh, and, you know, just plug the video in and do it, poof, life change is going to happen. But, you know, to run an Alpha intentionally, you need to have the right people. You need to create the right environment. You need to, you know, be, you know, investing in that. And then you need to recognize the limited nature. Alpha helps you get so far and then what's the step after that? How are you developing people around some of that versus just, a, well, we're, we're running alpha, you know, uh, kind of a thing. And so a lot of times we step back and we think the program in and of itself solves the problem for us. Uh, and then we think at, at the end of it, we expect too much out of the program for where it takes people. Mm. 
Yeah, I use the uh, the image a lot, Rob. Like what you're talking about these the programs we offer, like stops along the journey, and parishes, right? Especially busy parishes, they got lots of stops along the journey. Sometimes you even wonder if it's the same journey, but we got stops along the journey. So that's the programs. What we don't spend a lot of time on in the church, generally speaking, you might, but what we don't spend a lot of times uh, time on in the church is the connecting the dots the like how to get from this rest stop to the next stop. And I think that's the connective tissue between the programs is where it's people focused. So like if someone takes alpha, are we real clear on how they get to whatever your beta is? Or do we just offer another set of programs and we hope that they're able to take that big jump all by themselves into this next thing? Or do we have a way to accompany people? See, People, I think that's where it's about relationship and accompaniment and leading and mentoring. We just assume if I'm the leader of Alpha, when my 12 weeks is over, I've done my job and it's on to like you looking up RCIA and deciding if that's the next step for you. So the programs over people, I'd like to see the programs connected by people. Like how can we lead people from our experiences? And that also mentions to you what you said earlier, Rob, is like, they're going somewhere, right? There's a path that people can follow that both the accompaniers and those being accompanied kind of have an understanding of or feels natural to them. Sometimes we'll get into these debates like, is it possible to be a Christian or be a Catholic and not be a disciple, right? And there's there's people that will separate those things uh, sometimes when, when it shouldn't be... <laughs> That, that distance shouldn't exist. Those things should all be synonymous together. So then it gets it gets down to the question is, like, what does it look like to be a disciple in your parish? Do you ask yourself that question? Do you try to measure it? And do you try to figure it out? And do you have a clear path of how you're going to help people get there? Or is it get back to, I have a vision for busyness, and we do... 92 different things in this parish. We list it in the bulletin. It's on the website. You pick what you want to do, and yeah, you have fun. Choose your own adventure, right? Like that's uh, that's what we that's what we kind of lay out for people. And again, choose your own adventure. Make sure you like it, uh, and keep yourself busy, right? Like it just kind of covers a bunch of the stuff that we've we've talked about. That's my conversion story, Rob. That's my conversion story right there. You just said it. <laughs> and so rather stepping back and realizing, no, no, we see we, we see people. And, and, and again, it's you, you want to have processes and you want to have systems that, that make it easier for, you know, uh, for, for people to kind of work through some of this stuff. But at the same time, you're recognizing the individual person as they're growing and you're putting the 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 thing in place, and you're making it a relational process, right? So uh, there are to use the word uh, company, Matt. Right? There's there there are other people that are assisting you, walking with you, serving you, helping you on this journey, getting to where hopefully, as you become a disciple, you go back and you help people somewhere along their journey, right? And your discipleship journey grows into where you help other people in their discipleship journey. So uh, Alpha is actually a really good example um, if if we take that as what some may call a program and break that open a bit more. Um, let's talk about how that really helps to develop the the culture, which in turn is just really all about investing in people and helping them along that discipleship path. 
So I think of as an example would be it's training and helping people to grow in in hospitality, but a hospitality that grows out of an experience or an, an encounter that they've had, again, that they want to share with others. And we talked about this this earlier in the call. So this isn't necessarily for the participant that's coming, but this is about the leaders that you're developing in your in your parish. So you're also helping them to to share with others what they've experienced. It helps to grow them as leaders. It's actually a leadership pipeline because this is where they come to develop skills that they take with them onto, like you said, the beta, the next step after alpha. It also is a great place to model this culture of invitation. So if you're running it as a program, it's going to run its course, right? It's going to, you're eventually you're going to go through all of the parishioners and you'll have exhausted people to attend your alpha program. But if you're starting to use it as the, the pump, I guess we would sometimes say it, that's fueling your parish, then you're developing this culture of invitation because people come and they have this experience that they want others to have. And so you encourage and you celebrate the invitation. So there's so many things, just three examples off the top of my head that are, are aiding towards your vision. And so it's so much more than just a program that somebody comes and finishes and is done with. You know, Tammy, as you're saying that, I realize I almost feel silly saying this now at this point in our conversation, but how interconnected, and we knew this when we were building the list, how interconnected all of these ways to, to destroy parish renewal are. You know, we hit on culture and vision and how those are connected and evangelization and here we're at programs. It's almost like we use the language so interchangeably, just setting like 10 ways to destroy parish renewal is hard. Uh, and I reminded, I was at church uh, for a daily mass recently, and uh, during the prayers of the faithful, the, during the intercessory prayers, uh, these were the back-to-back prayers of the faithful. One was, for those that have left the church or are far off from faith, may the Holy Spirit go out and find them and bring them back. I'll hold, I'll hold my comment till the next one. The next one was, for those that are in need or suffering, may we be the hands and feet to go serve them. And I was like chuckling in mass and everybody else was just praying and I was trying not to disrupt. So let me get this right. If it's about evangelization, that's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. But if it's about service or social justice or serving those in need, the gospel mandate, which it is, by the way, to go out, then then I'm on the hook. I'm only on the hook in one of those two scenarios. And I think that's maybe that approach of like, you know what, it's easier for a program to do the hard work that maybe I don't feel equipped to do, or it's uncomfortable for me, or I'm not used to sharing my faith. So let me invite you to a Bible study that the pastor's leading. And I think it's like, this should put all of us on the hook not just to evangelize people, but to bring people to faith, to invite people. See, the next step from hospitality is invitation. Hospitality is like the environment we set. Invitation now has me on the hook, right? It's not the bulletin's job or the pulpit announcement or the priest's job. I'm on the hook if it's an invitational culture, as you said. Sorry, that was my, that was my soapbox this late in the game. Yeah, and, and again, to that point though, Matt, that's where when you run a uh something like alpha, uh, it, it assists us to do what it is we're called to do. I remember, Tammy, you may remember this at St. Benedict a few years ago. We had a, a speaker there 
that referred to Alfie said it's evangelization for chickens, right? And because it it's it it allowed us to do it, you know it it served us that yeah we we create a relationship we we invite someone we bring them in but there's a big chunk of the the heavy lifting that a program like Alpha can do to help someone but again it's 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 an aid to help us it's not the silver bullet that that does everything that we wanted to do it's not the program that helps to lead to the conversion the life change the heart change it's just a tool that assists us in what it is that we need to do in helping people grow and develop. Yep, it's a good way to put it. Okay, guys, we are down to number one. Yes, this is the time for the drum roll, please. Number one. Number one thing that you might be doing to destroy renewal in your parish is staying the course and doing nothing. Yeah, we love the conviction uh, that, that you said that with. So, yeah, the, why we all laugh here is because we did not necessarily agree that this is, was the we, number one. And by we, who do you mean, Tammy? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let me put it this way. I'm going to ask you guys now to convince me why this is worthy of the number one spot and why it doesn't feel anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tammy, you set that up so everybody's believing you now. They're like out of their seats. <laughs> Um, and you know, what's interesting is we look at back at all of these, uh, when we say ways to destroy parish renewal, some of them are actually ways we're sabotaging, like things we're doing that sabotage. And some are ways we're sabotaging by doing less or not the right thing, or in this case, nothing at all. Like how many people are like, okay, I don't believe they're, they've been skeptical of everything we've said, or they've had a reason why they're doing the one or they're not doing one of them. Like, this is the place where I want number one to be where the excuses die. I want this to be the place where we say, number one wasn't the biggest way, the most universal way, but I want it to be the way that after everybody's listened to an hour of Rob talking and, well, and me talking, I want you all to say, the status quo is not good enough. We have to do something. It's too important. I'm convicted that I need to get up out of my seat, whether Tammy framed it well or not, and say, what are we going to do about it now? It's too urgent and important. Churches are closing. The Titanic is sinking. So there's the urgency and important message. And I think too many of us say, well, I'm going to just wait or I'm going to keep doing the same thing I've always done. We already talked about some of that. But if you do nothing, your church will look exactly like it does right now in 10 years with fewer people. That, that's what's at stake. If you do nothing, your church will look the same, but the people will be less. You know, here's the here's where all the people went. They're not going out on mission. They've just left your church altogether. So there's the rah-rah speech, Rob. What do you, uh, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's so many, there's so many conversations around this because, you know, sometimes people say, look, scripture just calls us to be faithful. And it does, but so often we think faithful is showing up to a meeting, being very passive and doing the same thing. It, it, the scripture speaks about being faithful, but it speaks to being faithful to fruitfulness, right? And recognizing that it's not just about showing up uh, to the same thing. Sh you know, like like you'll you'll see people that go to mass and they're there every time the door is open, but they come in and you, you know you don't get to they don't invest in relationships. You have no awareness of where they are spiritually. You know, they're they're not volunteering in anything, all this, but they're faithful, right? And that 
a lot of times we sell it again, it gets back. We celebrate their activity, but where is the fruitfulness uh, of their lives? And, and so the question is that, that we shouldn't be, be faithful. Another thing you hear sometimes people go, well, you know, like the church comes and goes, there's trends, it's up and down. People have been predicting the end of the church for 2000 years and it hasn't happened yet. And, you know, it's just like, like, don't get too bent out of shape about it, right? Like this, God's people always come back. And, you know, I remember um, the previous bishop here in um, Halifax making a point. He said, he said, the church is eternal. The church is always going to be around, the church. But your church might not. You know, your specific church. Like when when you said, Matt, you know, and uh, what will look like in 10 years, only a little bit the same, only smaller. That's assuming it still exists in 10 years, you know. And so I think there's this idea of recognizing that, yeah, we, we, we do it, need to recognize what it looks like. In 2 Corinthians, I forget the, the, the specific passage, but it spoke of the, it says the men of Issachar, Issachar was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The men of Issachar knew their times and they knew what to do. They understood they could interpret their culture and they responded in a way that was appropriate to their culture at that particular time. And that's, that's part of what we're, we're called to. And so often, you know, people are like, yeah, but what if we get it wrong? You know, what if we make a mistake? What if, we're already getting it wrong. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know, from that standpoint, we're already seeing a significant decline. We're already recognizing the trajectory around these sort of things, right? So, so to justify, and, and, and it's okay to be scared. And it's okay to not know what to do, and right? Like, it, you know, we're not saying step into it because you've got everything figured out and you know exactly what you need to do and you're never going to need to make any mistakes. And like that's, but but to sit back and say, we've got this and, and justify not doing anything is is the biggest mistake we can make. And, and, and sometimes, right? Like I've talked to some priests and they're scared to make changes uh, because other priests in their diocese will jump all over them and start to speak negatively about them, uh, right? Because of, well, if I do this, they're not going to, you know, and sometimes, you know, we, we, we don't do anything because of our insecurity as well. So there's, there's some of my rambling thoughts uh, around this one as well. You know, the, the, parish, the parish is perfectly structured to get the results it's currently getting. So if you're happy with that, just keep doing it. But I bet if you're honest, or if you ask people besides just your own opinion, they're not happy with the current results. I had one bishop in another country. I was sitting down um, at a very informal conversation with him at his, at his office, and he said, parish decline suits many priests, including my own. And that's not because that's what they want. It's because they've drifted from what got them out of bed in the morning. They've drifted from uh, maybe that vision they had for the priesthood of changing lives and seeing conversions and seeing vibrancy. And they've been placed, they've had other things placed on their shoulders. They had no business leading, other responsibilities, sometimes several parishes. Like we're expecting too much out of our leaders. It's no wonder like they're looking forward to parish decline because they finally get a break. They're less busy. And people don't end up, that's not why people became priests, but the ones this bishop was talking about is because they've been burned. They're worn down. They're overwhelmed. They don't know in this new cultural environment, which is like a post-Christendom environment, how to do this, right? We're figuring this out together. 
but doing nothing isn't figuring out together. And I also believe that just as a plug here at the end too, Tammy, that I don't think they can do it alone. And I don't mean just ask a good friend at the parish to help them. There are so many resources, including like what we do, right? We're coaches. We're not coaches because we know it all. We're coaches because people need a partner to accompany them, to walk through it, to bounce things off of, to talk about trends, to keep the most important things, the most important things. I think that's actually a great note to end on on there, Matt. Um, it's true. We do love to come alongside and help, um, whether it's through through coaching or the earlier stage of, of just even discovering what renewal um, looks like. So if this is of interest to you and you would like to, to hear more, you can reach out to one of our relationship guides through our website. Thank you, Rob and Matt, for joining me in this conversation. I enjoyed it. It's always fun for me to hear from you guys. I enjoy your stories. I find them very enlightening, and they bring these principles to life for me. Thank you. This has been the Missional Leadership Top 10. Thanks for watching.